Now, I have a theory about this gospel reading that you heard just a moment ago. The scene here with the disciples and with Thomas is so unexpected, and it's described with such detail, I think the Apostle John wants us to focus more on this part of the resurrection story, the one with frightened and doubting disciples, than he does on what actually happened early Sunday morning. Now, that's my theory. Now, why would he want to do that? If it's true, why would he want to do that? He tells us, verse 30, These things are written that you may believe, believe, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I think John wants us to focus on the doubting, frightened, skeptical, absentee followers of Jesus who, in the face of the madness of resurrection, believed not just that it happened, but that this man is Lord and God. Belief that a resurrection took place is much different than belief in that man, in Jesus as Lord and God. I mean, resurrections themselves can prompt a range of response, can't they? Many of which may not be belief or faith. You may recall the uh, story in John chapter 11, where Jesus raised his friend Lazarus. You remember this? Um, the religious leaders were so terrified that what did they do after they brought after Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead? Did they believe and start following Jesus? No. They immediately started plotting to kill him. The fact of that resurrection could hardly be denied by Mary, by Martha, by all the others who were there to observe Lazarus walk out of the tomb. But that physical, undeniable space-time event did not guarantee that everyone there would become devoted followers of the Son of God. There was another step. There was something else. With that irrefutable evidence in front of them, and the invitation from Jesus to have eternal bliss with him, John 11, the religious leaders still opted for his execution. How insane is that? But resurrection didn't move them to becoming that lifelong disciple of Jesus. It did nothing to their core beliefs in the face of all that evidence. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it fascinating how committed we are to our core beliefs? Have you ever thought about this? I mean, just look at the political landscape around us. It doesn't matter what the other side might say, we stick to our core beliefs. Even with a mountain of evidence to the contrary, we don't budge. That's true for everybody, not just teenagers. Mm -hmm. We know that's true for teenagers, right? Look, sorry, guys. I was a teenager once, too. We just do that. There's an article in the New Yorker magazine that describes, uh, it's called, uh, How Facts Don't Change Our Minds. Have you seen this? Uh, they cite a couple of 
well-known studies from Stanford University in the 1970s. I'll just read a little bit from, from this article. Um, it says that a set of Stanford students was, required, uh, was recruited for a study. The students were handed packets of information about a pair of firefighters uh, uh, made, made up, Frank and George. Frank's bio noted that, among other things, he had a baby daughter and he liked to scuba dive. George had a small son and played golf. The packets also included the men's responses on what the researchers called the risky conservative choice test. Okay? On one version of the packet that was given to the students, Frank was a successful firefighter who, on the test, uh, almost always went with the safe option. But there was another version about Frank that was given to the students. Frank chose the safest option, but he was a lousy firefighter who'd been put on report by his supervisor several times. So about halfway through this study, the students were informed that they had been misled and that the information they received was entirely fictitious. The students were then asked, knowing that it was fictitious, tell us what you believe about these guys. What are your own beliefs? What sort of attitude toward risk did they think a successful firefighter would have? The students who received the first packet thought that he would avoid it. The students in the second group thought that he would embrace risk. And even after the evidence, here's what the researchers noted, even after the evidence for their beliefs had been totally refuted, people failed to make appropriate revisions to their beliefs. And in this case, they said, the failure was particularly impressive. You don't hear failures referred to that way very much. It was a, an impressive failure since two data points would never have been enough to uh, enough information to generalize. Amazing how resilient our core beliefs are. In spite of our constant demand for proof, for evidence, for the facts, what we really want, what we are really looking for, is for something to come from outside of ourselves and to impress on us and shape us give us beliefs and faith that we can live into. We need beliefs that come to us. Beliefs endure. Evidence comes and goes. Seems true one day, then it appears to change. We believe we can interpret something clearly, and then we look at it from a slightly different angle, and we're unsure. Did any of you see the photo on that of that dress online that made its way around social media? It, and, and the debate raged about what color it was. You know what I found to be true in all of that, other than it was a complete waste of our time? What was true is one person had their opinion, the other disagrees, and they both were completely convinced that they were right. Now, beliefs aren't disconnected from evidence. I'm not saying that we should blindly and naively believe in God. 
But the fact of the matter is that you and I were not there on resurrection morning. No one saw Jesus descend to the dead during those three days, nor did they observe his spirit reunite with his body. Resurrection isn't the sort of thing we can analyze in a laboratory. So what is it that can transform a historical event witnessed by someone else a long time ago into that kind of rock-solid, deeply held, fully committed belief and faith for us? It's a gap, isn't it? It's a long way. we got to get from that event where Thomas is, my Lord and my God, and follow all the way. For years, we've been preaching on Easter Sunday to the ones who aren't typically in the room, but maybe we should, we've been getting it wrong. Maybe we should be having people here the Sunday after Easter when we ponder the story of disciples who doubt God and worry about their own necks and struggle to believe. Because that's really where the rubber meets the road for us. What will we do with this man, Jesus? Will we follow him? Will we persevere? Will we believe that kind of deep belief that doesn't fall away? And i got to admit to you, it's tough following Jesus sometimes. Dare I say often. It's also tough hanging out with Jesus' friends sometimes. If you want to persevere with Jesus and his messy church that's full of knuckleheads and backstabbers, myself included, you'll need more than a general consensus on the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That historical episode and the significance of that episode will need to become a belief. And I don't know what else will keep us from following Jesus and hanging out with his friends other than something that will stay deep in our bones. You know, without being too melodramatic, it's a miracle that we are all here in this room today. It's just a miracle. Many of us have been inside the church for a long time, and we have experienced the deep aggravation of dealing with the ones who call themselves followers of Jesus. I get it. How many of us have found ourselves on the brink of losing our sanity and maybe even our faith because we gave our lives to people around us and our reward was pain and disappointment? You've been there, and I've been there. I mean, how are we still here? I told a retired minister once here in the area a bit of my story in ministry, and at the time, I hadn't even gotten to the worst parts. There's been more since. And even so, he looked at me and he said, why are you still in church ministry? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus keeps me here, I think is my answer to that. And maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you're still a bit 
Or maybe you're disappointed with God. I mean, it's His church after all, right? Two weeks ago, I sat across the table from a Christian man who has spent a lot of his adult life around law enforcement. Not exactly a cheery and happy-go-lucky situation. A lot of darkness. He's seen it all. And I found it awfully ironic that he looked at me and said, I've never been employed by a church. I've only done time on the board. But man, church politics. I don't see how you do it. And we know what he means, right? And our minds have just drifted to the lies told about us and to us, right? And we marvel. We marvel at church leaders, pastors, elders, that they could behave in such ways and continue to call themselves Christians. Now, I want to be clear. What I don't mean is a sin from which they repent and ask forgiveness. King David has us all beat on that score. I mean the egregious, sinister, self-serving, politicking, and power-mongering that are standard tools in leadership toolkits and have nothing to do with the cross-bearing, self-sacrificing love of the resurrected Lord. And we tend to crucify the King Davids of the church and fall hook, line, and sinker for the King Saul's. And I bet you are discouraged with all of that. And it causes doubts. Doubts like Thomas had. Doubts as to whether this is all real. Whether this church business is really worth it. I understand those doubts. My heart goes out to you. Your heart should go out to me. But the great surprise and the unexpected thing in my own life that I can share with you is that I believe with all my heart these doubts and this struggle, they are a gift to drive us to stronger belief in Christ and deeper love for His people. I would not have said that to you a number of years ago. But I think Thomas, rather than being scorned, should be lauded because his doubts were so deep and powerful that when Christ did meet him and he touched those wounds, his belief took deep root. And he gives us one of the great confessions we find in the scripture. My Lord and my God, you are not just an emissary from the Father. You are God. And in my view of things, it's a mistake to believe that faith and doubt are fundamentally opposed to one another. They are not mutually exclusive. It is not a zero-sum game. That's the usual understanding of poor old Thomas, the disciple who wasn't at the tomb, who wasn't with his friends the first time Jesus showed up in a locked room, who had serious doubts that a crucified man could come back to life. And we accuse Thomas of a lack of faith, but I prefer to think of Thomas as having a wounded faith, or maybe a searching faith. 
It's even a little faith. See, even a little faith, the size of a mustard seed. Doubt pokes and prods and even wounds that faith so that it has the chance to grow and to deepen, to bring healing. If faith is unchallenged, if faith never gets put through the fire of doubt and suffering, then it lacks a certain maturity. Doubt is the engine that drives us to a deeper faith in God. I mean, young people, you need to be aware of this. You are told, doubt pushes me to skepticism. Doubt pushes me to leaving Christ, to abandoning all of this stuff. Doubt is a gift for you to open your heart and mind to ask God to do something you can't do for yourself, to resolve something you can't resolve on your own. If faith is easy for you and belief never wavers, I mean, I wonder if our faith is placed merely in the idea of God rather than in the living God. I mean, think about the great saints of the Bible. Abraham negotiated with God, didn't like what he was up to. Jacob wrestled with God. Moses complained to God about his plan for him and for the stubborn people he had left him with. Most of David's poetry is lamenting God's silence and David's circumstances. The prophet Jeremiah, oh goodness, we don't have time. John the Baptist, as he languished in prison, had his doubts and needed some confirmation from his, design, his divine cousin. You remember that, right? See, these are the great saints of the faith, and doubt was a central feature of their lives. All of them looked at their world, at the people of God, their own circumstances, and they doubted, and they wondered if it was worth it. But... They persevered. Somehow, they kept following, in many cases, to death, to an abbreviated life. How? There are two surprising events in this story. One you'll have noticed, the other may have slipped by you. In verse 22, John says, And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Hugely significant. Power to believe and to keep going with Jesus and Jesus' friends comes from the outside to ourselves by the Spirit of God. The breath of life isn't something we give to ourselves. We simply inhale what God breathes out to us. This is the life of prayer and worship. It's the practice of inhaling God himself as he's with us. The person who doesn't feed on Christ in word, in prayer, in sacrament is at great risk of falling away. Doubts will come to that person and they won't have the spiritual strength to wrestle, to engage the battle, to fight. Belief will be shallow. Faith will begin to shrivel up and starve. Christ is present by His Spirit, in word, in prayer, 
and sacrament. So as we are open to those means of grace, we receive the life of God himself. So as you come on Sunday and we take chunks of time to pray and to listen to this word and to feed on Christ, this is spiritual nourishment so that when your doubts come, they drive you to belief, not to skepticism. The other surprising event, this one jumps out at me more than the other. Jesus didn't chastise Thomas for his doubt. I find no rhyme or reason for this in the scripture. Sometimes someone doubts and God disciplines them. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was mute because of his lack of faith. Mary asked a question, and she was blessed. Thomas doubted, and Jesus said, yep, touch. Though he had told Mary Magdalene at the tomb, don't touch. I don't know. We are dealing with the living God. So Thomas doubted, and Jesus said, okay, you need to touch. Here they are. Let me lift up my shirt. Put your hand right here. He gave him what he needed. This is what God does. He's in the business of hunting us down and overcoming the obstacles of our hearts in order to make disciples that can believe and endure anything that the world or this church might throw us And so the question for us, what do we need today to deepen faith and follow Jesus? It might be that you need to wrestle with doubt, maybe often. It could be that you need the healing of the word, the word of peace that Jesus extended to the disciples. You may need relief and healing and peace directly from the Spirit of Christ. If so, He'll give you that. He gives you what you need to see Him, to believe in Him, to follow Him. I have a friend who grew up in the church. As a young person, she was shielded from the underbelly of church life. But she got married to a man in ministry. And life took a turn for her. Church became something different. Church became a burden. And it caused a lot of pain. And it raised a lot of doubts for her. And it had its effects on their marriage too. They struggled. They left that church calling. And they went to the UK so my friend could do doctoral studies. Uh, he was doing doctoral studies. And she was at a place in life where church was of no interest to her. She went merely out of obligation to him. She attended, but she paid no attention to his sermons. She sang very little, even though singing had always been a huge part of her life. And the reading of the scripture just went in one ear and out the other. However, when it came to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and she began to chomp, chomp on the bread and sip that wine, something unexpected happened to her. And over 
time, her heart began to open. She slowly let her guard down. Her smile returned. Her love for the church blossomed. Processing sermons, singing those songs, that's, that wasn't what she needed for faith to deepen. God said here, don't overthink it. Chew on this. Sip this. I'll do the rest. And I'll do that for you. God will give you what you need. Doubt, belief that gets in our bones, and perseverance to follow Him and to love His church. Lord, have mercy on us and grant us your peace.